0: In this episode artists Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst discuss their recent work with artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies, with specific reference to Spawn, their AI baby, which listens, learns, speaks and sings on Herndon's recent album Proto. Holly Herndon is an American artist experimenting at the outer reaches of dance music and pop and is currently a PhD candidate at Stanford's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. Her albums include Platform and Proto. Matt Dryhurst developed the decentralized publishing framework saga, which enables creators to claim ownership of each space in which their work appears online, and a number of audio plays that derive their narrative from the personal information of listeners. He lectures on issues of music, technology, and ideology at NYU, and advises the blockchain-based platform Cooperative Resonate.is. This conversation was hosted by Sean Dockray, a Melbourne-based artist, writer, and programmer whose work explores the politics of technology, artificial intelligence, and the algorithmic web, and took place on the 20th of January at Luke Project Space as part of Liquid Architecture's eavesdropping investigation. Okay. Uh,
1: so glad you're here. <laughs> um... So the, um... Uh, the the overview for the event says at the very first line that you're, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies focusing particularly on spawn. So I just thought <laughs> let's just go straight there and maybe just Uh, have you take a few minutes to talk about Spawn, the development of Spawn, and what
2: Spawn is, and that'll kick us off. Should I I talk about it? Okay, so um, Spawn is what we call our AI baby, and that's kind of like the headline grabbing, like AI baby, Um, but what it really is, is it's a metaphor for some experiments that Matt and I and Jules Laplace um, we're doing with machine learning and music, um, and so I guess three years ago um, we were given a grant by the German government to celebrate the death anniversary of Beethoven. Um, so twenty twenty is the Twitter they're 30th. really glad he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, 2020 is the 250th, I think, death anniversary of Beethoven. So they're doing this project to kind of, um, you know, I, I think the concept is, like, what would the Beethovens of today be doing? And I don't have the hubris to say that I am the Beethoven of today. But anyways, that's kind of, like, what the what the project is about. And so they were um, giving out small grants for artists to um, to pursue research projects that don't really, like, fit into the practice normally. Or you might, like, we might not have the kind of, like, economic incentive to kind of like go down that path um so anyways it, w- it was really nice to to be given the resources to, hi- uh, to to buy some hardware and to hire um Jules um Jules is a developer that we met while we were living in california and he's like just a badass crack developer um, who also is a musician so being able to kind of like share a musical language and have um have him understand kind of what some of our goals were early on was really great. Um, And so yeah, we just started messing around with our own, creating our own data sets, kind of cobbling together some different software that we found on GitHub and uh, started messing around. And for the first six months, we basically just it just sounded like shit it was really awful Um, we almost gave up and then we um, had a couple breakthroughs so we started using sample RNN which is a recurrent neural network technique Um, and that's kind of when things started to sound interesting I think the first time and that's the track on proto called birth um, because I think we could really start to hear the logic of the network Um, I don't know how much how far I should go into detail should I keep going
3: yeah i i I keep going if only for the fact that the i i think you're right in saying that sample rnm was like a breakthrough moment but actually the bulk of the work that we did on the record didn't involve sample rn at all i'd only use that like make that distinction because specifically like the the issues with like the 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 correlation between this technology and like what we classically understand as like sampling technology is something we've actually tried to step aside from right like there's really has anyone seen the like um like 24-hour death metal youtube uh things right like that 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 sample rnn right so it's it's uh the the basic idea is you can you can train a network on like a a piece of sand and then it will try and anticipate what will come next on the basis of what came before and it creates like a pretty pretty interesting illusion of um illusion of development or or generation Um, but speaking more to actually your point uh we were desperately trying to get away from this idea of kind of just recreating something um as impressive as that technique is and most of the bulk of the really interesting stuff that i would consider to be spawn um is more to do with um us training uh, neural networks on a corpus of 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 sounds that were created by us and our collaborators and oftentimes audience members for different performances that we've been doing. So maybe we
2: should zoom back for a second. Okay, so, sorry, we just like just got off the plane. (laughs) I'm like, okay, jumping in. Um, So when we started the project, we didn't really have like a clear idea of what neural networks could do, and so we really wanted to just kind of get our hands dirty with it so that we could build a kind of conceptual framework and understand kind of our stance on the technology. Um, And when we started researching it, we found that a lot of people were using it to kind of, um, like you guys have seen like Infinite Bach and things like this, where it's like you train a neural network on um, an existing composer's corpus, usually like um, turned into MIDI data, and then you can create like Bach forever or music that kind of sounds like Bach forever. So there were a lot of examples like that. um, A lot of examples where... um, Uh, especially like, you know, corporate examples where they're just kind of like hoovering up, um, anonymous audio, um, or anonymous kind of like MIDI files online and kind of, you know, training on that. So from like a very early kind of, um. Point, we decided that we wanted to a focus on audio material because we didn't want to abstract audio into MIDI files and there are many like aesthetic and political reasons for that that we can get into and then the um, the other thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to create our own data sets we didn't want to use anonymous or um, you know like a lot of universities have kind of like really large data sets that you can use so those were two like really early kind of constraints that we put on the project do you want to explain why we did that or?
1: well just um, just to interject how long did it take for you to start to get to that realization of wanting to use uh custom data sets versus like pretty early on
3: pretty early on if only for the fact that that a lot of like 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 pretty much all of the precedents that we could Mm. and most of the the software libraries that were being released were focusing explicitly on on midi right to the extent that when you speak to most developers or most companies when they think about machine learning and music they think about Ingesting MIDI and spitting out MIDI, the vast majority, like that's a, a common, a common, and that goes back to the the eighties, right?
2: Which is why music from a very specific period of time uh, is often used in exa- as an example for this, because it's flattered by the score. So, like you know, someone like a Beethoven, you know, this is when the score was kind of at its apex, when the score was often even valued above the live performance. Um, And then, you know, over the last hundred years or so, there are many kind of musical parameters that aren't very well captured in MIDI data. And those are a lot of the things that I care a lot about, like, you know, context or timbre or things like this.
1: And was there an intermediate part, like uh, where you looked at, you considered data sets that were kind of WAV files, but not custom made?
3: Um, not Other than like just kind of uh, testing the system, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know what I mean? Like th- there was definitely some points where you're like, oh, I've just got a, f- a folder here. Like let's mm. t- throw this folder in and just see as kind of like a, yeah, a way of like mm. testing the water. But
2: it became it really pretty clear pretty that pretty... it was kind of like sampling, even though yeah. you're not like, you're not physically sampling. It's so similar. You're like sampling the vibe of something mm. so heavily um, that it became kind of like a, it felt like a legal issue almost. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to return to this, like, this, uh, this. what I think that you're, like, pointing out a little bit is this, like, reanimating the dead, mm. kind of, like, taking this archive and, like, continually kind of, like, uh, refreshing it or j- not even refreshing it, but just, like, propping it up and keeping it alive. But just going back to um, Spawn a little bit and the way that you describe her um, is that... In all of the, because I binge watched all these like interviews and read, yeah. read all of them just oh, stuff God. to prepare. <laughs> um, but um, one of the one of the things that jumped out at me is that uh, you're very quick to insist on uh, spawn as a metaphor, uh, and I guess I'm just interested in in that in that like uh, this this um, this need to assert that spawn is a metaphor, and not. The, the thing itself, you know. Um, well, so. I'm,
2: I'm like, I'm a, I'm a little bit kind of allergic to like some of the kitsch around AI narratives. And I'm a, I am was a little bit worried by using the baby metaphor that people would think that we actually were like having this baby. And you know what I mean? Like there, there's, uh, yeah, with like all of the kind of fembots and stuff that we see <laughs> in culture. I didn't want to perpetuate that further. So that's mm. why I was trying to be clear about that. And also kind of trying to understand, trying to explain that it's not just one thing. It's like, it's multiple things. It's multiple processes. It's not like one fixed thing. Yeah. Do you wanna?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I think is that like when most people talk, I mean, we're being kind of polite in using machine learning and like not bringing up the AI question, right? But like in in most in most conversations, most of the kind of proxy wars happening around this are all in the realm of metaphor because nobody actually like most people having conversations about this have no idea about what technically is going on (laughs) right and so that's that's always the tricky thing in our kind of case i think and it's different with us individually but collectively we kind of have this similar experience is like on the one angle you're putting out a popular record that we understand is going to be you know pushed out and hopefully teenagers care enough to like come to festivals you know that's like Mm -hmm. that thing that like pays the bills and then there's this other side which is your kind of academic facing where you know, like Holly's writing her PhD thesis on this, so you literally can't bullshit, right? Mm. And like, same, there's a credibility issue there where many people, who of whom I will not name, like are, feel completely free to talk utter shit about AI and basically lie to people. I mean, fraudulent claims around the usage of AI in music. You know what I mean? Like, we can't do that because. Mm-hmm. You specifically can't do that because you're a thesis advisor at Stanford. But Hockey, I also do, we know don't even want to do
2: that. I mean, that's also no, okay, no, not, know, not know, interesting. It, like that. Yeah, yeah
3: no, I am not saying we would do it if we could get away with it, but I'm just but I'm, but I'm just saying it's like but it, but it, but we certainly can't do it, you know? And so and so the metaphor is like the one way that you can kind of you know, and the metaphor was like deliberated over a long period of time to be like this is something that like we can stand behind and, and has dual purpose in the sense that you can talk to someone who knows what they're talking about and be like, no, this is about, you know, supervised learning training sets, which happens to, you know, work quite well with the baby metaphor. And for the average person who's not really going to care too much about the weeds, we're not putting out some, like, Terminator... Yeah, you twentieth know, century kitsch bullshit, right? Like that's, that, that's also
2: why we haven't created like an animated spawn who's yeah, like yeah. this like towering baby like making music. You know, like, <laughs> although that probably like would have gone yeah. viral or There's something. There's gonna be many
3: maybe. of those this year, I promise you. Not from us, but yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: well, can you talk a little bit about then why you've given Spawn a gender? Like why? This has come, yeah.
2: This has come up a lot. I mean, I think. Well, the first reason, the reason is, the first trainings that I was doing with Spawn um, were with my voice. So then, the first kind of utterances I heard from Spawn were my voice, and I identify as she. And so, I heard myself reflected back to myself. And you know, some people have had issue with this because of the history of um, female digital assistants um, being treated. Poorly, And then that translating into the real world, like into the kind of like human world, treating female assistants poorly. Um, And I I think that that's a real issue. But I'm also, you know, part of this project is about trying to create a kind of a counter narrative um, and and, and another vision for this. And so I don't feel like I have to be kind of shackled by that necessarily. So for me, I just saw myself reflected.
3: Actually, that's it. I mean, I I think. I think you you're right, and you believe what you're saying is right. <laughs> but <laughs> no, but I think it's older than that, actually, because we haven't told this before. But I think we actually can say this now. The original, like the, sorry, I'm, I'm not going off script. Um, yeah, I mean, I am, he is
0: going off script.
3: <laughs> no, no, no. So the first time, even before the B. Beethoven Grant, we were approached, incidentally, by Blade Runner, because they were remaking the film. Wait, you that's why? Yes. No. I'll finish it. The, <laughs> yeah. The, we were we were approached by Blade Runner because they're making the film, and then of course like we weren't asked to do the score or anything like interesting. Like, but like they they were doing all this stuff around the film, and they wanted to commission art projects. And we worked for like two months. You remember this? We worked for like two months on like a pitch. And the whole pitch was, oh, okay, so it's it's not part of the Blade Runner film, but it's like something that goes alongside. I'm like, oh, what would be really cool is if we did like fan fiction, like counterfactual fan fiction from the Blade Runner story. Because if you go back to Blade Runner, you know, like when you watch that film back, there's all these holes, like it's not that well, like, what's the word, like developed a script. It like, looks incredible, but it's like quite basic, actually what happens. So there's all these holes in the narrative. And we came up with the story that was like, actually, no. The guy who created the intelligence—it was the
2: pre-story.
3: Yeah, we do, exactly like the
2: prequel to Blade Runner. We wrote
3: exactly, and we're like, no. Actually, what happened was the guy was uh, the guy who came up with this uh, was in a research university with his wife, and his wife wanted to take this technology and allow for it to thrive on a separate par- as a separate parallel civilization, um, and his wife was called Donna. Which is uh, some obvious people will get that obvious reference, um, and the child was going to be called Spawn, and we totally forgot that and haven't told anyone that. But that was the, that was the original reason, and we're like, oh yeah, and then we'll get Spawn, and like Spawn will be this voice that you know was allowed to to kind of co- inter- interdependently flourish with um, uh, with this kind of splinter civilization uh, elsewhere, while the world of Blade Runner went to shit. And they said but they the c-
2: franchise wouldn't let us yeah, yeah. reference their story, even though it was a. Commissioned for, yeah, it was the whole thing was. Which is also funny when it comes
3: to like data ownership, right? Because the people who remade the film had to license Blade Runner from Blade Runner. So Blade Runner, whatever the movie was, they needed to ask permission from the original license holders of Blade Runner. Also, to make that thinking film.
2: about like artistic necrophilia, which you brought up, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, we'll exactly. get into that later. But the all of the kind of like jukebox scenes and all that. Yeah, yeah, totally,
3: absolutely. It was like these weird like Frank Sinatra songs with like the Sony logo, like in the. Cl- I don't know who saw that film, the the remake of Blade Runner, but, but yeah, anyway, the, but that was actually the genesis, and, and so the idea was there would be a more you know a. a, a uh, female uh, uh, splinter civilization done in the form of uh, fan fiction. And, then it, and it wasn't, yeah, and they didn't like it, so it never happened.
1: Um, well, just go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned treating female assistants poorly, and I'm just thinking before we get into the uh, necrophilia, and <laughs> just thinking about uh, the way we treat the living, just as a segue into like the way that we train our, uh, machine learning models, mm-hmm. um, and just uh, to get you to comment on the, the particular ways that Spawn was was um, trained, as a contrast to something like Susan Bennett, where if you read how she was treated in the training of Siri, is that she's working uh, like four hours a day. It's that doesn't sound like very long, but it's a really long time to be reciting nonsense sentences uh, cleanly and clearly, five days a week for a solid month in order to produce the voice of Siri, you know and then she's sort of more or less tossed aside and only recovered you know years later uh, for various reasons. But the way that a spawn is trained is like obviously operating according to a different kind of logic. And I guess, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about both the public and private uh, performances of training, or maybe they're not all performances, but they're like, it seems like there's different modalities in the way that Spawn's been, uh, trained.
2: Yeah. So that's another reason why we use the, the kind of baby metaphor. Cause we, um, see her being raised by a community of basically a community of vocalists that we're working with. So our ensemble. So the idea was not to use kind of random data to use, um, to actually hire people to name them and pay them, for their time. Um, but yeah, of course it gets more complicated as we do public performances. And you know, I think we always just try to be respectful of people's um, privacy um, in that way. I don't know. Do you have anything to add to that?
3: Yeah. I mean, the, the first time we did the, the public, we did, there was a piece called Deep Belief. This was like two years ago. And it was kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a theater piece. And the whole idea was that we had these kind of icons who were all ensemble members who play, perform characters. And the characters were in some way symbolic or representative of a different kind of vision of where this technology might go. Um, and th- yeah, yes, so we, we had this like congregation and then they were doing these call and response exercises and some of which were like people were kind of being coerced or tricked into giving information um, and others. But, but, but the entire time, everyone was very, very cognizant of what was going on. Um, And also there's a, there's a big distinction, I think, between um, recording the individual voice of somebody that you can, you know, that you can identify and recording like the abstract voices of thousands of people. That that's like different in ways that, you know, uh, aren't as interesting, but like, but yeah but in terms of, but in terms of anyone who like we actually sat down and said you know we want your voice uh, to participate in this record they're credited and, and we're paid for their time that was the
2: That's also kind of like the stoner thought that 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 was like this aha moment is like as soon as something becomes captured in in whatever medium, like photo, video, whatever, it becomes machine legible. It can become part of a training corpus that can then create something out uh, from its logic. And that seems like something really obvious. But once you kind of come to that conclusion, it's like, oh, my God, everything like my voice could be modeled from this talk even like if somebody was recording it and then there then you start to get paranoid you know and then you start to kind of you go down the wormhole of like well what does it mean to have a voice what is what is vocal sovereignty like you know voice is also kind of a communal thing like traveling down here I hear this amazing Australian accent that you all share so you know voice is also kind of a shared communal thing that then you perform as an individual so it kind of opened up this whole Pandora's box of um yeah. What does it mean to, what does it mean to have this kind of like audio, um, fingerprint?
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a kind of fear, which is like quickly being realized, which is, which is, yeah, that your voice can be synthesized from, you know, I think it's as little as five seconds of, um, of audio. Um, there are like, you know, scientific demonstrations that through transfer learning in a few seconds of audio, yeah, you can, you can pretty much trick someone over the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that definitely is uh, terrifying. And it brings up this question of consent, which normally doesn't, yeah, normally doesn't enter into our thinking of um, both the giving up of data. And, and it's definitely not something that we think about in terms of the reanimation of data. Uh, going forward.
2: For like, sure. And I think also because it's on the Vanguard, we don't really have proper legislation around it. So like, I mean, the um, the prison system in the United States is awful. I don't know what it's like here, but it's just really awful in the States. And so there, The Intercept um, released an article a couple years ago where they were talking about how um, prisoners um, were, it was kind of like an opt-in only if you want to use the, um, the phones of this private prison, your voice would be modeled. And then the the company would have this model and then in any kind of like future investigations or whatever, they could be kind of like scraping, trying to listen for your voice, not only the voice of the incarcerated person, but also whoever they're talking to, who's not incarcerated on the other end of the line. So things like that, I think are just because it's like, it's hap it's all happening in real time that we don't, sometimes the laws like don't catch up in time or you can,
3: you can clearly imagine like future employers, like acquiring that data set. Right like so as to be able to screen convicted felons for future employment opportunities. or You know what I mean, like it, it, it is it is distressing. Um, yeah. And also on the consent issue too, right, that there's like Whitney Houston's going on tour and presumably never gave consent to tour posthumously, right? We have an example, I mean, th- th- there's a whole like lecture whatever thing we give on this too with like, a, what's his name, like uh, Lil Pump and XXXTentacion who are the two kind of like SoundCloud cloud trap stars that both sadly died in the last couple of years, who were, whose management and family is giving consent on their behalf to collaborate together posthumously. So there's songs out there with, you know, those two collaborating together, even though they didn't like each other when they were alive. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it's like, that stuff's like, it's done. I saw, I mean, isn't James Dean being reanimated for a movie? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, but it's just, it's over. It's like, it's, I mean, it's not even like bleeding edge. It's just like this weird, yeah. It's this done. is it's,
2: something like, so the reason why I keep using the word <laughs> necrophilia, artistic necrophilia is because Miles Davis, this is a term that he used um, criticizing sampling when kind of hip hop culture started. He's like, oh, this is artistic necrophilia. You should, each generation should create a new sound that reflects their their kind of like current conditions. And arguably hip hop did exactly that. Um so I think that was maybe a little bit short-sighted, but it's also quite prophetic when you look at these kind of like Tupac hologram shows or the kind of like Whitney Tour or um so anyways, what I think a lot of these kind of like voice modeling or a lot of the kind of like vibe stealing that you can do through machine learning is it does kind of make us question what we do with our kind of shared archive. And maybe this is just something that'll be completely passe in the future, like the way that we look at like Playing an old film or something, maybe would have been like hideous to someone a couple hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's just something that we ha- kind of have to deal with legislatively to- together.
3: And there's no going backwards, right? Like, did you see the article, the teal the funded startup that's uh, crawling the w- scraping the web for faces? Uh, Clearview yeah exactly exactly it's like the, the, the part of the challenge too is like anyone beyond a certain age most of this information already exists about you and it's kind of hard to roll back right so so dealing with it we don't get the luxury of like a clean start
1: yeah and everyone is clutching at pearls like at that you know the fact that someone has the audacity to actually do what everyone is already thinking about doing but no one has done yet and it's yeah i mean the fact that it's it already exists as a possibility and it's being really you know the fact that they've thought about it means that it's been realized in private they've done it already sure they just yeah. haven't like uh, sold it as a company yet yeah like someone a- else yeah is gone and, and done it and is selling it as a company
3: but that i um, mean maybe this is something to talk about later but just on that particular point that's part of the reason why when again going down this rabbit hole we've both been given pause to start looking a little closer to home and questioning some of the kind of ubiquitous logics of sampling, mm. and kind of just general entitlement to media um, that have been kind of commonplace. That has like that is the co- countercultural mode since the nineteen nineties, right? That's the countercultural mode that I grew up with. Is kind of this libertarian individualist ideal that everything is basically mine to play with, so long as I'm as long as I'm not punching down or whatever, right. whatever that means. Whoever arbit- arbitrates that, I don't know, yes. um, but. But yeah, it, it it it
1: yeah, it's a kind of like like Negative Land or something like where it's just well, absorbing stuff from us. and media. it like, never
3: loses that cool. Yeah. Even
1: though and it's
2: not to kind of like erase an entire history of music that we love and like you know of course the Pierre Schaeffer and the kind of like this liberated sound from its origins and all these kind of things like they're really interesting. But it's also so time specific. I mean, when you liberate a sound from its context, you also liberate it from its author and from, like, the cultural and maybe religious context or whatever kind of context that's around it. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like, when we were looking at the history of sampling, of course, there's tons of egregious examples of, you know, like, you know, Age of Innocence where they take kind of, like, Um, Taiwanese Aboriginal music and make a kind of like Euro trance song out of it and like luckily they take them to the court and then they they get kind of reimbursed but that kind of logic if you know if if we don't kind of deal with it now which we really we've done a really kind of shitty job of dealing with sampling Mm -hmm. it's like we have two options it's like freedom of information of everything or like you know like hellacious digital rights management from the major label side and like you don't want to choose either of those it's Mm -hmm. not like anybody wants to be like a sample cop you know like like that's also (laughs) not cool like what what is the third mode you know well
1: maybe to ask that question more specifically and just to ask you matt a little bit about sago um which (laughs) yeah and and just like maybe like maybe to talk about that project and maybe lessons that you've drawn from it because i noticed that the github repo hasn't been updated in the last four years so it feels like it's something that you've (laughs) left behind
3: yeah and uh yeah yeah no i well yeah i mean it's funny that on the the kind of ownership question. Yeah, for those who don't know, like years ago, uh, I worked on a project called Saga. um, And the idea is basically, it's like a decentralized publishing framework. And the idea is that when an artist or any publisher or anyone who wants to publish something um, publishes their work online, um, it gives you tools to alter it in every discrete location that exists online. So the idea, the classic example would be you post a track to SoundCloud, That track disseminates across the web. People embed it or whatever. Um, If you took exception to, say, Mercedes-Benz embedding it on their blog for free, um, you have the choice to either take it down everywhere or leave it up. Um, And the idea with Saga was that, no, it's kind of like you had little switches. You can say, no, Mercedes, I don't want you to have it, but this kid can have it here. Um, And then on top of that, because that, that railroad, so to speak, has been built. You can then publish code on top of that to do more interesting things and say, well, no, actually, my song or my video or my text is free everywhere until 200 people view it in one location, at which point in that location, you have to pay money to, to view it. And so the part of the idea at the time was looking at like advertising runs the web um, uh, and saying, okay, well, you know, we would do something and then Put a bunch of time into it. It's published online. There's not really much of a mechanism for us to make it any kind of yeah, make any comp- be compensated for that. And then you find yourself on like an Intel blog, and all of a sudden, you know, they're driving all this traffic to their blog there, and ostensibly using what we did. Um, and there's even more egregious examples. From, you know, like imagine finding your piece of artwork on a white nationalist blog. What would you do in those circumstances? What kind of recourse do you have when it's all just out there? And so Saga was like an early um uh, like early attempt to just think through some of those issues and say well why is it that in the digital realm we've kind of accepted this this is kind of this common sense realism idea that like oh once it's out there it's just kind of out there right um and who does that benefit and so you know saga was and is now a dead project but the but the, but the 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 original idea was saying no why can't i have control over my work in a digital space just as easily as i just as i would do with a, with a piece of physical work that i would choose to put in a room and when my work is there why can't i be there with my work right so if someone posts a blog post about the work and has an opinion i disagree with or agree with why can't i communicate with them through the work in that discrete location mm-hmm. um and you know there's long story there's there's a whole long story why i'm not working on it anymore um but it does tie into this um, this idea, I think, of, of, of wanting, again, not, not to create impenetrable DRM, as you said, or like go, go back to this time of like wanting to hoard um, information, but, but trying to think of like what a middle ground might be um, and take very seriously the fact that ultimately my, my position that I'm happy to have an argument with someone about is that freedom of information narratives, while they might, while they might sound very seductive, ultimately have helped Google. Right. Ultimately, they, they have led to the creation of large entities who can, under the kind of subcultural or countercultural cool of sampling or or dynamic like move fast break things, mm. um, uh, feel at liberty to take whatever they want. And that's the, that's the origin story of Google, for better or worse. Right, is that they they indexed the web without asking anybody, um, and and created that and, and created a new map. That, Upon which they could sell services that nobody else could offer, right? Um, and so that connection between in music or sound communities that you know and it's difficult because they say we come from the, I've enjoyed a lot of sampling music, and I'm really happy that that existed and so on and so forth but but that kind of countercultural cool uh, uh, ultimately the same kind of logic has been used to to create silicon valley and and these impenetrable companies that now you be you know many people will be very, very quick to criticize. But when you point at them and say, "Well, you know, are you doing anything different?" Um, they might back down a little bit, right? And that's you know, a much, much longer conversation. But yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I do want to return to that, especially like around the this kind of like maybe success of independent music, and how that success becomes kind of like exactly the 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 structure of domination that exists today. And that's just like in a, in a, in a way a description of this dialectical movement. It's not it's not a failure. It's just like it's sort of accepting that, yes, the success actually has these repercussions and that we also have to move on and develop kind of like new ways of thinking. Uh, that's definitely something I want to talk about. But I think uh, that a little bit what we've been discussing connects to, the, to the, what we have like maybe more broadly talked about in terms of like the right to die, um, the right to be forgotten on the web, mm-hmm. you know, to like not be searched up you know, to, to just because something exists doesn't mean that it has to exist in perpetuity. Obviously, that, that that's in the interest of Google. It's not necessarily in our interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the right to silence, the right to not have to say anything, and maybe like to circle back to the AI a little bit. And these like the generative potential of these uh, uh, neural network models is that like you're able to reanimate the dead? You're able to sort of create a model from their past performance, from their archive as a data set, and generate something kind of, you know, quote unquote, new. Um, but, you know, they chose for one reason or another, whether it's time or a conscious decision, not to make that thing that you've sort of generated. So they have a right for that not to exist uh, as well. And I think that's like where it's pushing like uh, sampling from one logic, like, you know, like where it's like this little tiny piece of property and just like who really does that belong to when it originates in a community? Mm-hmm. It didn't originate just in your like, you know, genius brain. It originated in a community. So it should go back to the community. Like, oh, we can get, get behind that maybe. But then to have the, the neural network actually generating new material for some person. And that kind of returns it to the metaphor because it's like the model kind of functions as a metaphor for an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, then all of a sudden they they no longer have that right to be silent. They no longer even have the right to be dead anymore because they're just like constantly reanimated. Uh, and so that's like all of what you're talking about to me kind of returns to this question of like the the, the generative potential of these neural networks. And and it's just like music is like one very audible um, or sensible way that we experience this. But then like on an everyday level, there's ways that like, even after we pass away, that our data is going to continue to have some agency, you know, through some, some neural network or another. And I know I, I am coming to a question again, <laughs> but I was thinking about like, like bringing that back to um, these generative models that we see kind of all over the place. And typically when people work with AI, they're kind of like, oh, I generated this like, new thing and it sounds weird. Isn't that really cool? And uh, they just kind of leave it at that. Um, whereas what I'm quite interested in what you're doing is that like AI becomes a bit of a quasi object. It becomes this kind of like new possible relation between people. Like it's not the end in itself, it becomes, like a, uh, it becomes a, a, a form of structuring relationships so it's like the beginning, it's the first step rather than the, the conclusion. And so in a way, I could ask you either to comment on, on that, like the ways that like working with AI kind of restructures the way that you work with other people, with your collaborators, way that it generates kind of new limitations and affordances. Or alternatively, like uh, we talk about the, the um, generative, um, both music and text and graphics um,
2: well, I think we were kind of looking at it as a, as you said, as a new way to collaborate, but as a kind of like coordination mechanism. So thinking about it as maybe like the most kind of contemporary um, coordination mechanism that we have right now. And and I think that's why we created that kind of um, mm, thread between uh, early vocal music, uh, vocal folk music and um, using the voice with neural networks. Because thinking about early vocal folk um, as like a technology, as a human coordination technology, people using kind of like nasal, like kind of like uh, singing up in this part of their face to like make the sound travel really far across mountains and to scare predators and all of these kind of things, thinking about it as a kind of coordination, I guess, um, technology. So that's, that's how I look at it, as, as, a, as a kind of new way You know, I'm always trying to think about how to make the computer a kind of like performance uh, instrument and Spawn isn't really there yet, but we're kind of trying to get there. But for me, it's always about it's about how can I use this kind of, or work with this thing in order to coordinate with other people so that we can play together. And specifically with this ensemble, like I, I, I didn't want any anything to get in the way. I wanted it to kind of like augment our communication with each other. Um, so for us, it's like, it's really important that we're able to have these kind of like euphoric singing moments with our ensemble and we don't want working with a neural network to kind of become this kind of like um, awkward or, uh, I don't know, heavy kind of process. It's like this block in the middle of it. Instead, it should be kind of helping facilitate that. Um,
3: Yeah, just add to that, I think that's, you're gonna say what I said kind of, but what I wanted to say. Um, But I think, yeah, what's, what's funny about these kind of like dead end kind of like neural net machine learning projects or whatever, the kind of demo art component of them, right, is that like, there's a nice, I think there is there is something quite poetic in the sense that like, from the beginning, actually, when we started working on this, the first thing, this was before there was an ensemble in place, and we're like, uh, oh, like, if this record's gonna mean anything, then the technology has to basically be this ambient thing that's witnessing um, real human activity. And what you were saying about with like performance, ultimately that is like that kills or slays all of these like most stuff that that's discussed around kind of uh, machine learning and music, like the the these kind of like really dry demonstrations that ultimately like sh- demonstrate more what that what this technique what, what we're lacking than than what we've gained, right? Like mm-hmm. Amazon did a thing recently where they like did some heinous. You know, generated audio thing, and you think you got to think that they're, they're presumably at the state of the art. I mean, they have a lot of money to throw at this stuff, and, and and when you witness it, it's like I don't know anybody who would witness that and and be like, wow, you know, the future of music is going to be incredible. It's like, no, it it shows the opposite. It, it demonstrates this kind of like you know, bedroom kind of uh, noodling, kind of whatever, um, and the. Um,
2: there's nothing wrong with bedroom No, floor. no, sorry, I'm, I'm not. I'm He's not, saying I'm it's, like, just, generic no. identikit, like, beat, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, rock beat with, like... Yeah, exactly, it's it just crap. And we like all the, love a bedroom noodle. But
3: that's the thing, is like, but, but it's funny, funny, like, with the record coming out, too, because this has been a consistent thread, actually, with Platform, like, with Platform in the same, is, like... Actually, the the boldest gesture that we attempted to make in working with machine learning was the emphasis on the ensemble and the human voice and the fact that like we were making also you know because there's this when you tour a lot like I was saying this yesterday in, in a in a talker giving it's like I'm fascinated by the economics of all art basically like once you understand it everything becomes so much clearer. You know what I mean? Like like small economic distinctions and decisions, and like how much something costs, and who gets the visas, and who runs it. It's everything, and that's for better or worse, just everything becomes really really clear. And there's this kind of already there's this habit of like cost cutting and efficiencies around for the festival circuits and the art market, right? Where where demo art does do really well, particularly digital demo art, where you can just like send a file, and it can like appear in every biennale instantaneously. You know what I mean? Like that that and that exists in music too, but is also somehow impoverishing, you know? Um, and so part of the the grand gesture that might be more appreciated by this room than like most conversations in the world is like, how do we make the most irrational economic decisions on this topic? Cause like actually flying a bunch of people around the world to sing is really economically irrational for someone in our position, but yeah. is possibly the best thing you could do, uh, in in talking about AI or whatever uh, or automation, particularly in an electronic music context, and that's that and that's gone over a bunch of people's heads, which is super fine. Um, and specifically with the record, right? Because like when the record comes out, it's like the press is like, "AI baby," whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like it doesn't want,
2: matter how many times you try to like point mean, yeah, to the yeah, humans yeah. involved; they're just like AI baby.
0: Yeah, that's cool.
3: <laughs> that's cool. I mean, you take what you get. You know, you're not going to like moan about it, but it's but it's like, but yeah, but that part of like having it be trying to think of how this couldn't actually augment relationships and and not exploit people in that process. That was kind of the point. That was like what we spent the most time deliberating about.
2: I mean, we're you know, especially because we were touring Platform for a couple of years. And Platform was also, that, that was the album before Proto. That, and that was also a largely collaborative album, but it was very much an online collaborative album. So we were really missing this kind of like in physical space, musicking with other people. Um, when we were touring Platform, we noticed that a lot of the performance aspect of electronic music was being um, automated by intelligence, intelligent light systems and um, projections. And I'm not dissing that at all. Like, I love all of that stuff, but it was just kind of making me ask what, the, what our new role is when we have all of these other things that are able to perform so elegantly. Um, so that's, I think, well, that was like some of the kind of early kernel of why we put together a vocal ensemble.
1: I mean, one, uh, one way that I've maybe thought about similar things is uh, in observing the way that uh, GPT-2... Um, which, if you don't know, it's a language model. Maybe you've played with it. Like it went around a little while ago, but it's a language model by uh, OpenAI, and um, which is Elon Musk, and then Microsoft also funded it. But it, it kind of like you type in a sentence, and it generates the next few sentences, and it's remarkably good. Like it's a, you read it, and you kind of think, oh yeah, like a human maybe could have done that, um, and then you just see people sharing it and copying and pasting it, and uh, everyone doing it. And then you see yourself, the way you treat it, you keep hitting generate, generate, generate. And there's this like disposability to every single artifact that's generated. And I I, I guess I was thinking about like when it all becomes data which is reanimated through uh, through these models, that everything becomes incredibly disposable, because the yeah, the labor doesn't exist anymore. There's yeah. no human labor, so then there's no like real cost except an environmental cost through the like running of the servers and the algorithms and stuff. Um, but in, in, in a way, like because the humans cut out of it, there's a total devaluation of, of life. And so it seems like what, what your approach has done, at least in my reading of it, is to kind of confront that disposability of AI through the kind of like reclaiming of the training process.
3: Um, Yeah, that's, I think we published something, but it was like, yeah, like every step, every time these things get more efficient, it becomes easier to make meaningless art. (laughs) And it takes human beings to give things meaning, right? So like the more Abundant media is, and the thing, the thing you don't have to look very far because, like, we already have gone through this process, right? You, you don't need to, but like, the more abundant it is, the easier it is to listen to a random techno track online. The more valuable the thing that sounds a bit different, or maybe has a story associated with it, or a community associated with it, the more valuable that scarce, rare property becomes because yeah, because it's it's standing out in a sea of nothingness. And mm. that's the thing is like fetishizing how easy it is to generate you know fairly competent meaningless art isn't really that cool unless you are a developer in a research organization whose task has been set to try and render as convincing enough a piece of meaningless art as possible, in which case you have succeeded. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's an impressive accomplishment. But that's not art that I care about. You know, like, why would I care about that? That's-
2: but I see. I think the ability to kind of, like, steal a vibe is becoming... No, that, that's something that I care a lot about. Don't steal my vibe. No, because I think that <laughs> the, the speed at which you can steal someone's vibe is just going to become, like, lightning fast with this. I mean, it's something that um, Paley Gretzer writes about. If you guys don't know uh, who he is, I would check out his work. He wrote an article um, for GlassBeat a couple years ago where he his research is actually with neural nets and um, and comparative literature. So he wrote his PhD thesis for Harvard a couple years ago on this. Um, and so he's kind of like training on um, specific kind of like literary styles. Um, so that's kind of his background. But he has this thing called the theory of vibe and, and how uh, a neural network can, can kind of really efficiently analyze and understand the vibe of something um, without really understanding where that comes from and then be able to kind of uh, reproduce that. And so me being someone who cares about like, you know, the the bedroom noodler who comes up with like the new thing that, you know, is like unique to them and that 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 noodler to be for to have their vibe just taken like that immediately. That's what I kind of get concerned about in this kind of like scary dystopian. Um,
1: Could. Could I use that as like an opportunity to nudge the conversation to discussing Mm. things like uh, so we've been talking about like uh, AI and how in the production process, but I'm also thinking about the consumption or distribution process and the the role of AI and maybe even uh, vibe matching and generation and stealing and, you know, all other kind of stuff with uh, with platforms like Spotify. And, uh, with the act of listening and how, yeah, like the, the, the ways that listening is sort of guided by these, uh, silent actors. Um, I yeah. know that's something that you've, uh, written and talked about quite a lot, Matt.
3: Yeah. I mean, oh God. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I really don't like Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I mean, I think trying to say something smart, but like, but the parallel there is when we talked earlier about a sense of entitlement, which I think is this kind of again, like like this very libertarian individualistic sense that you can kind of take something, decontextualize it, and all of a sudden it's yours. I've been really heavily critical of DJing as a practice, even though the the history is venerable and wonderful, and I have many friends who are DJs and are wonderful. And, but but <laughs> but the no, but but the actual act of decontextualize I actually had an argument with someone who I won't name on Twitter because I respect him, but like. But we had this argument where he was like, "No, no, no! Like, what you don't understand is that when I take a piece of music and I play it in my DJ set, it then becomes mine." And I was like, "Well, what do you do to it? Because to me, it sounds like Usher or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> what have you done to this track that all of a sudden it's yours? Like, what entitlement, right? And this is like Lockean kind of like settler colonialist. Like, I'm here and I'm making value out of this piece of media right now. The ergo, it's mine, right? It's this is very."
2: That's literally what's happening. Though. No, no, I mean,
3: but, but, it's a, but that's a really long and deep liberal argument. I mean, that's a very profound argument, right? And so taking that and then saying, okay, well, Google, you know, did that. Again, kind of booned by this 90s countercultural moment. There's an incredible, uh, you should definitely go and watch like the interview with, I think it's like Chuck D and Lars Ulrich about Napster. On MTV, and it's fascinating. It's amazing, and Lars Ulrich was actually so spot on. Even though he like comes across like a cock or whatever, but like he's so spot on in what he says. Um, but it, but you really get this feeling of this nineties moment where you know tech, everything was possible, and it was like it was going to be the hip hop moment. It was going to be the remix moment, right? And how that opened this back door to companies ba- to basically say, look, like just trust us. We're going to reorder everything. Um, and then Spotify comes along, and Spotify very much—I mean, it, this act of, of decontextualizing something, removing any uh, 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 removing any semblance of information about where it came from, who supported it, the location—by by design, Spotify alienates that piece of media from anything or any amount of labor or love that went into it by design. They're not fucking, they're not stupid. They know exactly what they're doing. They, they, like that, that platform is designed by hundreds of people and you can't find the label, you can't find the city. Very, it, you know, as little attempt as possible is made to root or situate that media. Um, and ultimately is again, like kind of an act of, of displacement and of, and of stealing in that sense, right? Because okay, you don't have to put your music on there if you don't want anyone in the world to hear it, um, right? But this, but this, but the, the kind of hubris and the entitlement, not only of the people uh, 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 working on those systems to say, okay, well, we're just gonna break up this album. It's meaningless, right? We'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll have these playlists and we'll have a like race to the death of some random anonymous people who probably get paid off a ton of money to run these big playlists, but also of the individual who's listening. I think there's a degree of entitlement there too, where, you know, the most common argument to justify a Spotify is saying, oh, well, it's better than piracy it's like, well, that's not really an argument actually. right? Because there is a degree of individual responsibility there. And again, I don't want to be Lars Ulrich necessarily or kind of like tell everyone that you need to spend all this money that you can't earn because of the digital economy <laughs> on albums that don't exist anymore or whatever. But like, but there is a there is a root kind of like original sin there of, of entitlement. And we, we can nerd about this for a long time, but I, I talk a lot about like Tim Berners-Lee or uh, Al Gore and this idea of you know uh, literally HTML, the original sin of HTML being kind of an entitled act, right? Of saying I can reference anything online on my special page, and there doesn't need to be back attribution to where that came from, right? That, that, that HTML allowed that possibility, um, and I think it is very much this kind of '90s, '80s, '70s kind of libertarian Californian um, ideology that that led to that. And so yeah, anyway, there's a long way of saying Spotify like um yeah sucks I don't like it (laughs) (laughs) well
1: um (laughs) hi I know that for you giving giving credit to the sort of like web of people who are involved in the generation of an idea for the concept of I mean it's something that you talked a lot about with platform um and I think it was quite easy because of the metaphor or the like language of platform was already about like the, the fact of the platform as something that's kind of like gives visibility enables others you know that's the 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 role of the platform is to enable the the behavior of other people for other people to like work on and build on and everything um and then as you move to proto i think like a i as a kind of um discursive terrain is a bit more opaque it's uh it's a bit more like black magic or something um and i guess what what i'm thinking about i know that that interest at least in what i've read in giving credit and acknowledging the others is something that continues and you mentioned paying uh the people who are you know giving their voices to spawn um but in in light of what matt was just talking about with uh the kind of like um algorithmic populism that's driving kind of uh taste on these platforms and things like that Um, how do you I don't know how do you how do you go about giving credit like like and what does really giving credit mean not you specifically but even what does it mean to give credit now in this context
2: I I mean it's difficult because I feel like the whole industry is kind of set up for the kind of uh genius individual like the lone genius like meditating on the mountain or something like that's what everybody wants everybody wants me to be like some like blissed out synth queen who's just like I'm coming up with all the ideas myself and if I push back against that then I kind of like I don't know it's like uh, pulling back the curtain or something and kind of you lose some of the mystique and It's happened so often that, you know, I'll have like a really nice interview and I'll talk at length about the people that I work with. And then you read the interview and it's just like me, 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 (laughs) me, me. It's like, damn, you just cut out all of the, you know. So it's actually hard like you have to actively kind of like ask people, can you please print this or can you please like mention people by name? Can you, you know, post people's websites and things like that? Um, So I think it's. you know, in this kind of like attention economy, we're incentivized to just kind of like push ourselves as, uh, as individuals as much as possible. So I think it's just like a constant kind of balancing act. And, uh, I guess a bit of a struggle. I mean, I'm also not somebody who feels super comfortable being the center of attention all of the time. So it's not like something that I have to like meter myself and be like, settle down, Holly, like you're being, you know, um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah,
1: um, I was also thinking a little bit about a comment because I read the glass bead article. This is my favorite thing. I don't know. I like <laughs> that. Um, I encourage everyone to read it. Uh, but With in Alex? that, you, you make you make reference to this. Uh, I mean, you, you kind of talk about what post capitalist music might might mean, or what it might look like. You might not remember it. Oh, it was a while ago. Let me fill oh, oh, you oh, in. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what you said. Um, I mean, you actually, you you kind of made reference to the, what I think is like an ongoing kind of like fantasy of automation, which is if automation, if, if we manage to displace enough work to technology, then we're freed up to, you know, have these make make the the most interesting decisions or have different relationships with each other like, that was sort of, like, what music in a post-capitalist society might might mean. I, I don't know. I think... Um,
2: I mean, I think that's kind of, like, what we try to do metaphorically on the stage. Um, so it's, like, like, I was saying before, now that we have all these kind of, like, intelligent light systems and projectors and everything. What does that free us to do on stage instead of just, like, stand there? And it means that we can, like, be joyful together and, like, hug each other and love each other and enjoy each other and be ultimately be more human together because we have that time and we've been freed up to do that that's kind of the ideal Mm.
1: but could you um I mean so this jumps to another interview that I (laughs) I watched uh where you're talking about new fantasies and just like that as a musician you're able to kind of kind of enact these new fantasies or, or put them forward and I feel like that what you're describing in these kind of uh, shows, where there's quite a lot of different people involved, different modes of of listening and attention, and different modes of spectatorship and modes of production, that this this is kind of performing for for a certain amount of time, some kind of new fantasy or some, yeah. Um, So maybe well, a lot of
2: that came out of kind of like uh, you know, like post movement, you know, touring a lot of, uh, I guess being part of like an electronic music community. There was a lot of kind of like dystopian fantasy at the time, you know, and like there, there's such a history of that in electronic music, and I of course come from that as well. Like a lot of Warp Records stuff, you know, a lot of that stuff is really amazing. But I was kind of like looking for something. That was, uh, I don't know, like presenting a kind of alternative, like kind of looking at it, like asking almost for like a seat at the table, like as the kind of music economy was changing so much, I, I was really wanting like the musicians around me to also be making demands for what they want instead of just like this sucks, more like this sucks, but what if we did this or, um, and so for me that kind of like started at home, like instead of just being unhappy with the situation or kind of like reveling in the kind of like dystopia of it, what if I, you know, it's actually much harder to come up with a kind of vision of what you want. Um, and I felt like this kind of like dystopian approach felt like kind of giving up power to those who were already in power by just kind of like ceding control in a way. Um, so In a way, my practice, I mean, being someone who's, like, obsessed with um, vocal processing, I mean, that's from, like, the the very beginning is a kind of fantasy moment. I mean, I'm kind of, like, transcending the physical limitation of my voice. Like, I'm kind of an okay singer. You know, I'm not, like, an awesome singer. (laughs) So it's, like, from the beginning, it was, like, how can I... You know, how can I do something that's better than myself or bigger than myself or kind of more fantastical than my physical body? So that's like the very kind of like origins of the practice, I think.
3: Mm. I'll speak to it a little bit, too, from maybe a different angle. I was talking about economics earlier. The one thing that I think is fascinating on the topic, like, okay, like a post-capitalist music. Right. So like there are blissful. Existences, right? Like, so for example, if you go to Denmark, I did some teaching in Denmark, and it was pretty blissful, right? Because you have this like kind of weird model society, like quite homogenous but very wealthy, um, and there's co-ops everywhere, and schools free, and I taught at the school that was free, and it was full of people who like would have fitted in here and would have like known everything you were talking about, and it was wonderful. But it was also kind of like this this mo- like like toy model that like was just infeasible elsewhere, right? And like you run into that occasionally with with, for respect, the academy, right? Like. There's kind of like these beautiful kind of like market adjacent opportunities to create what comes across like a utopian thing mm-hmm. um but quite whether that could port over to dakar senegal or you know i, I it, it's quite difficult and and that's like a, a responsibility in the sense that anyone who has the privilege in the that to be able to work on something with no market adjacency really ought i think ought to think about in our situation it's really quite weird right because like I mean, Holly has academic entanglements. I kind of have academic entanglements, but with no long-term security, you know, it's like I'm like an adjunct professor somewhere. Um, uh, But then we're also kind of like on the fringes of the actual market of music, which is to say that like, you know, the music is this big thing and we're kind of like a barnacle on the side of it. But like, fortunately so far, you know, we can play shows and, and convince most people that we're just like a band like anyone else. But like considering the like research focus in there, everything's like an insane negotiation to make it not just an you know, I don't want to be insulting, but like to be something worth worth like that like I think would be worth our time, you know? Um or something that, that's like rewarding in a way beyond the simple spectacle of going to a music festival or whatever. And so in a sense, like the post-capitalist question, I think is really interesting to me, if only for the fact that it's like, how can you make as idyllic as possible a scenario that isn't, that is actually visible? Cause that's a way more difficult question than making in a vacuum, an, an idyllic utopian experiment that is not in any way, uh, resolute enough or resilient enough to be able to be seen by a lot of people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so the the real difficulty and also to do, and, and in a way, like actually when that piece was written, uh, the the glass people, this was with Alex Williams, right? Yeah. So Alex Williams, who is for those who don't know, who wrote uh, Inventing the Future with Nick Cernak, and was kind of like the left accelerationist type. And it's funny because they were like the the poster book of the left accelerationist. And it's funny because this brings me back to that moment, the idea of a post-capitalist music, because the, the proxy war that was happening discursively at the time was between Disc magazine PC music these kind of like what i would consider to be in some case kind of like a right accelerationist approach towards things of like run it into the wall like nike mcdonalds you know like like and, and in some way like make critique from yeah whatever but right and then like and again i like a lot of those people but you have to you have to have an opinion right and then there was like the the other side of it which is like okay well how do you not dismiss the potential of new networks and the, just be like a, a thar, you know, like like just you know like dismiss all media as being corrupt and cynical, which a lot of it is, but you know, just like be in that mode. Like how do you embrace some of this stuff to try and carve something out that might be positive, even if that might be ultimately be a futile exercise. And that was where platform came from, was platform was in t- in an attempt to be in conversation with some of that stuff that was like guys at the time, but be like, no, hey, like, platform co-ops and there's all this cool stuff that you could do that's like maybe less kind of, you know, libidinal than, you know, well, I don't want to- But, mug, that, but yeah. the,
2: the, that approach is much less functional in a music economy. I and mean, that's the problem. Then that's, and that's the problem.
3: And that's a concept, we were talking about this yesterday, not naming names, but like, it's really, really difficult there. Cause you're like, as you said before, when you said, I try and credit all these people that I work with. And then when I read the article, it's just about me. And my counter argument there is, if it wasn't just about you, would we be sitting here? Would we have a career? That's the challenge. Because mm. culture is like a sieve. You think you think that you can just make this beautiful thing and then push it through, but things then just get, you know, some things die and then get abstracted. And ultimately, you know, the economics will dictate what products or what people end up stepping through. And so negotiating that is like mm. stressful as fuck, you know? Um, and also, particularly, Especially
2: when you actually care about your collaborators and you care about...
3: Yeah, and also particularly because we're, of course, academic adjacent, so we're just corrupted the entire time. right? We're hypocrites. <laughs> Everything we do, we're hypocrites. It's like, no, actually, the most difficult thing to do is to find some way to, to have some of those embers survive a pass-through. Uh, uh, it's a, a, a Trojan
2: yeah. horse. Yeah. You have to, in some ways, Trojan horse mm. it.
1: And I can also see the appeal of uh, universal basic income which is something that's come up a few times uh, around you. And, um, like, in a way, like, what you really want is not necessarily to develop the perfect system so that everyone is re- remunerated precisely for the contribution that they put in. Like, that kind of, like, accounting, that a over, overzealous yeah. accounting is just, like, yeah, is horrible. You just want everyone to, like, not have to suffer to live. Like, you don't want people to... You know, like it's the basic communist creed. Yeah. Like you know, to everyone according to their yeah. needs. Like everyone gets what they need. And that's simple as cha- that. That's well,
3: and that's also the challenge when it comes down to these machine learning systems on that bigger level. Is it really is a, a socialism or barbarism scenario, right? Because these things work with a lot of information. Mm. Small local, like you don't have the local farmers market version of. Big AI. If you want to solve cancer, you have the data of the entire country working together. So that's either owned and also by the
2: ability to be able to kind of like zoom in and find out who contributed what, like tiny little piece to each model is. That's just like yeah, yeah. that's a nightmare. Yeah.
1: Um, and I and even like like I was all on board for a universal basic income for some time, and then I like was uh, I forget who it was. It was someone on Facebook who's incredibly smart. And they were they were sort of describing how well yeah but once you start doing that then everyone's rent goes up and then also social services just get eliminated because everyone's given the choice with their new money to spend their money on and I was like oh fuck you're right like, yeah. that's a really bad idea I guess and uh, you know I was I was <laughs> miserable afterwards going well what's the answer um, I realized we're getting like it's <laughs> it's been an hour already. And I don't know like how, uh, I obviously want to open it up and I also don't want to like make you suffer (laughs) and I don't know how much time we have and everything. But there's like one question that I had, it's probably the shittiest question, but it is a question that I was like, I quite wanted to ask. Um, So I just want to make sure I do it before I I, like ask you how you feel. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And it's, Oftentimes, like, we're always looking for, like, continuities and, like, what, what, what is it, you know, that has been a, a persistent kind of consideration from, like, the earliest album to the newest one or from when you were a student to now and so on. But I guess I'm, like, I'm kind of interested in the discontinuities and, like, the, like, breaks and, like, when you've changed your mind or, like, certain, I guess I'm wondering, like, what sorts of things have, like, you know, reality intervenes in two thousand. 17, 18, 19, I don't know. Um, that makes you think quite differently than you were thinking before. And I guess I was just wondering if there was anything like that um, for you. I'll just like, while you're thinking, I'll just offer up. No, okay, you ready?
2: It's funny, because yeah. the opposite is often asked, what is the continuity? Mm-hmm. But the discontinuity is never asked. So that's, a, that's an interesting Very question. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um
1: I'll just, I, I you have one. Well, I, I do because oh, I mean, I'll,
3: I'll just speak for myself. Like uh, the past couple of years working on these projects and other things in parallel, I've fallen in love with, I've fallen out of love with all of the subcultural things that got me into the situation in the first place. And that's really trippy and like quite like, what was the word? Like, um, uh, uh unstabling what, what's the word Destabl- destabilizing thank you very much um yeah destabilizing it, um and that that's been like a weird which i think is maybe like uh something that you can say is su- a successful byproduct of a of a successful art process or whatever if by the end of it you're like oh whoa i actually i think the opposite of you know and if i thought that at the beginning i probably wouldn't be here now i might be doing something else <laughs> anyway but yeah that's
2: Well, this is more of a musical thing, but I've been thinking a lot about what it means to have a protagonist lead vocal and also on a stage what that means to be like a front woman or like, you know, because now I have this ensemble of people that I'm working with and what it is it possible to kind of like have play that role, but then also to kind of like pass that baton over and then have someone else be the front person for a little bit. That's something that we kind of play with a little bit. And I don't it's not fully baked, but it's something that we're kind of experimenting with.
1: Yeah. I I, I thought I, I don't know if it's the same thing, but one thing I've thought about is like I think when I was younger, like trying to set up projects so that power didn't exist or something. Yeah. And then kind of like coming to the realization that like power is always there, like whether you want it to be or not. And so
2: It's funny that you bring that up because some of the early experiments that we did, we were like, we want to try some like non-hierarchical jam sessions. And they were like the worst jam (laughs) sessions ever. It's like, turns out you need somebody to like kind of, you know, intervene. But that was actually really important that we went through that kind of process of being like, okay, no, I have to be the leader here. But that doesn't mean I have to be a shitty leader or like Mm. an asshole. Like you can actually be like a... A, a kind and uh, uh, you can be a leader and still have the kind of like power dynamics not be so hierarchical
1: or so stable or so fixed yeah. or right. pro- Exa- like exactly.
3: their property or something yeah we we'd done on, on a similar note like we talked a lot about like in a way society pushes you into like power exists ambiently whichever way you deal with it like even bullshit things like crediting like Mm -hmm. the economics of crediting someone over time or paying someone out. I had a conversation with a, with a friend who's like a visual artist and specifically about this. And he's like, yeah, you'd think it was more progressive to give everyone equity in this thing. And he's like, I did this for a period of time. And then you think about it and it's like, actually the accounting mechanisms to do that don't exist in the art world, really. So what you're doing in there is you have to, then would have to like add a levy onto the, the amount being paid out to pay for an accountant to take care of it, which ultimately means that by the end of it, Everyone it probably isn't left. worth as much unless someone, unless the one piece becomes worth $60 million.
2: But it, this is something that really turned me off of uh, kind of more classical or neoclassical or whatever c- contemporary ensemble music um, work, because I noticed that if I didn't kind of exert myself as this kind of like super dominant, like I know everything composer, and you're doing it wrong and like, I don't know. Like, th- there's this kind of like SM kind of like dynamic between performers sometimes where they want to be told, like, no, you're fucking it up. Like, work harder. And like, that's like not. I like to work with people and I had a couple experiences where I had to like hire a conductor to do that and then the pieces were really good but I couldn't do that myself like I couldn't embody that so yeah it's really it's yeah finding the right kind of like um communication balance with an ensemble is like that's probably the hardest thing actually like the writing of the music is much less difficult than like finding that right kind of communication balance with people and on that note we should wrap it up, or I'm hungry. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this episode was produced by Mara Schreffager for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon and Wee people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more, head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.